0: The Lord is good. So thankful to worship with you today. My name is Pastor Dave. If I haven't met you yet, how am I sounding out there? Are you hearing me clearly enough? I'm thankful for that. Folks work hard on that. So thank you to our sound guys and everyone who, who works on that. We're looking today at Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, going to the end of the chapter. We're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This amazing moment of scripture in which Jesus shows us his kingdom platform. What is his kingdom like? What kind of king is he? It's a kingdom where the poor in spirit are blessed. Where those who mourn have hope they shall be comforted. It's a kingdom in which those who are of cultural difference are welcomed in. Those who are of a a religious persuasion are especially challenged. And all are called to know God is Father through Jesus and know a better life. But here we come to the end of the sermon, and Jesus is going to challenge us to decide how we will relate to Him and to His authority. He won't let us pass this moment without dealing with Him. There's a show that I've enjoyed watching uh, this past fall. My brother in law encouraged me to watch it, so I watched it. It's called Ted Lasso. And it's a, a show in which an American football coach leaves his college that he coached and he led them to a championship. And he goes to coach another football team, this time the English Premier League soccer team. He knows nothing about soccer. He's a hilarious character. He's just bumbling around in his first press conference. One of the journalists asked him if he can explain the offsides rule, which I mean, I don't think anybody can, but, but, but he fails in that. And so all of his players are thinking, how can we follow this guy? How can he be our coach? And so most of them don't like him at all. They just insult him. But he shows them a different kind of authority. And uh, one of his first things that he does is he puts this goofy suggestion box in the locker room. And he covers it with construction paper. He has one of the kids of the staff make it. And so all the team members would put suggestions in, again, mostly insults to the coach, but some of them actually requesting help for things that aren't working well. One of those things was the shower stalls had no pressure, and they'd like to have a good shower after a game or after a practice. And he takes note of that, and he takes care of it. It hadn't been taken care of in who knows how long, but he cares for their actual needs and addresses them. He treats his boss with kindness, his boss who originally hired him uh, for pernicious reasons, if you watch the show. But he treats her with kindness. He makes her biscuits, which the English call uh, biscuits. They're cookies. They don't talk right over there. But those, uh, so he makes her biscuits every night, and she wonders, where do these biscuits come from? And she loves them. And this coach is warming uh, her heart with his kindness. And then there's this guy, Roy Kent, who's just... He, he, he's sort of got this, uh, uh, this harshness built into his character, uh, which makes him hilarious. But he can't trust the coach, and he hates it. You can see him wrestling viscerally with the fact that he kind of likes the coach because he's so kind. And he says, you're messing with me. You're in my head. There's a moment when one of the players gets angry with him on the field, yells at him in front of the team, which is way over the line. He takes him in the locker room talks with him hears him and then he says yeah you're gonna have to run for that because he still does have authority i think in this show we see that people in our culture are longing for a different kind of authority they're longing for an authority that is clear that is real that will call you to run laps after you're acting inappropriately and out of line but one that is for you and one that is kind, that listens. We know from watching the show uh, that Ted Lasso is an imperfect man. He's not authority upon which to build your life, but he's a kind of authority that draws us in some ways. Jewish folks in Jesus's day had authoritative teachers. They were called scribes. These were people who were dedicated to copying the scriptures to memorizing them, to teaching them. And they would listen to all the rabbis of their day and they would evaluate their teachings as they interpreted different scriptures of the Torah, the books of Moses, or the rest of uh, what they called the prophets, which is more than just what we call the prophets. It includes the histories of the Bible and then the writings. They would interpret and teach these. And, And while they generally sought to abide by these laws... take them very seriously because many of them believed that to be in relationship with God, they had to keep these laws all perfectly. They would reduce what these laws actually meant. Jesus talked about this in chapter five. They would make them manageable. And how can you make love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength manageable? You can't. So they would find ways to do that and minimize the rigors of the law, make that narrow way a little wider All around Jesus in his day, there were libertine Greco-Roman folks who would not want to live by the strictures of any law. Their gods were, you know, living immoral lives and they would reflect that. There would also be folks who were Jewish who would struggle with wanting to lean into these other kinds of more seemingly free lifestyles. Then there'd be false teachers Who would claim authority and they'd be leading people away from this one way. There's all sorts of confusion about which authorities do we listen to in the early Jesus movement. We see that in the book of Acts. Who do we listen to? And Jesus is laying it down here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the question is how will we relate to him? Will we listen to him? Because let's be honest. I think in our humanity, in our fallenness, and especially in our cultural moment, we want it our way. We want to follow Jesus our way. You know, those are the slogans that we've been raised on. Have it your way. You do you. I'm speaking as a millennial right now. (laughs) But even you that have lived a little bit longer, the customer is always right. You guys are the generation that invented that saying. We want to follow Jesus our way. And we fail to respond rightly to the authority claims of Jesus. So how should we respond to his authority claims here in this sermon? And especially, how will we respond to the parts we don't like? Because Jesus says some very difficult things. He talks about hell. He talks about a path that leads to destruction. He talks about life apart from him. Very plainly, he's speaking about hell here. Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. What do we do with his authority? We like Ted Lasso, but Jesus, in all of his kindness and his love, then he starts talking about hell. What do we do? Well, we need help as we look to him and as we consider these words that he speaks. So let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We want to... See Jesus truly. We want to respond to the real Jesus, not to something we make up. So please reveal Jesus to us today by your word and spirit. Help us to see him. Help us to respond to him truly. Lord, wherever we are, if we have defenses raised to what we might hear in your word today, I pray that you would, by your spirit, break through those defenses. All of us can have those. We long, Lord, for our whole hearts and minds to be conformed to Jesus. So come and help. We pray in his name. Amen. How do we respond to the authority claims of Jesus? The first clue, and I'm just going to take us through the passage today and show us the clues Jesus shows us leading up to what this passage sort of shows us is the fundamental answer to that question. I'm not going to give you the answer at the beginning because the passage doesn't give you the answer at the beginning. Okay, so track with me. How do we respond to the authority claims of Jesus? The first clue is to not let ease determine your view of his authority. Don't let ease determine your view of his authority. We think about salesmen today. It's a good calling to sell things, to make a good living. It's a good calling to do advertising. The folks who work on Madison Avenue, they do good legitimate work. But when they're trying to sell you things, they're not going to say, Come buy our product. It'll be really hard. You, you may have to lay down your life, right? You're not going to buy that product. I, I want to go have some salty fries and have it my way at Burger King, right? That's what I want. I want to watch Netflix. It's easy. But Jesus is saying, Be careful about listening to authorities that only want to make your life easier. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. It's not surprising. It's not surprising that all of us are naturally inclined to want something that's easier, something that appeals to us, something that agrees with us, that we don't have to wrestle with. Jesus calls us to this narrow path. What he's fundamentally calling us to here is repentance. What were the first words that Jesus preached? He says, repent, be repenting for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has arrived. Turn, turn to him, turn to God. But that turning is hard and frankly, it's impossible to do alone. As hard as we want So how do we do it? Jesus will carry us. It's the only way. He says in chapter 11, we'll get there uh, in some months. Chapter 11, verses 29 to 30. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who want to turn to God and you're struggling. (laughs) And Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He is going to call you to follow him, to walk with him, to do something. And learn of me, Jesus says, for I am lowly and gentle in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus will carry you. He doesn't just place a yoke upon your shoulders and leave you, he carries it with you. And we find when we follow Jesus, the narrow path is actually the path of life. An ancient follower of God, King David, who wrote many of the Psalms, we read about him in First and Second Samuel, King David, he was a man who struggled deeply with that narrow path. He often found himself far off of it, way onto the wide path of doing whatever he wanted. But he found that the Lord's path was good. And he would say something like this in in, in Psalm 1611. He He would even sing about this, the Psalms are songs. He says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He doesn't experience the narrow path as one that's hiding pleasure from him, but one where there are true pleasures, eternal pleasures, the pleasures of God. And so many of us, when we look at the narrow path that Jesus would call us to, many of us, many of our neighbors, maybe some of our kids, some of our neighbors, coworkers, they see that narrow path and they see Jesus trying to keep pleasure away from them. Trying to, Jesus is trying to keep them from doing what they want to do. And so many of our neighbors, when they see Jesus's call to follow him, they'll doubt that his path is really good. They'll just wonder, how could he be good? And Many are going through a process that uh, many of us hear now, it's a buzzword, but it's a very real thing that's happening in many of our neighbors and people that you know. They're going through a process called deconstruction. They're deconstructing their faith. I uh, have a a friend and and mentor in ministry uh, who uh, taught in my seminary, and he spent a lot of time listening to folks who've gone through deconstruction. And after listening to all of these folks who have left their Christian faith behind for various reasons, he came to this basic definition of deconstruction that it's disassembling personal faith in favor of more culturally favorable views. The thing is, many people earnestly will start to reevaluate their Christianity and they feel like they need to find something that's more true. But in effect, what is actually happening in many of these dear neighbors, is they're going to another view that is easier for them, that doesn't hurt, a way that seems easy, a way that won't cause them to have really difficult conversations with their friends or look down upon by their friends, a way that seems to agree with more people. And if that's you today, If what I've said offends you, I just invite you to really ask if you're questioning whether Jesus is good and you're questioning whether his narrow path is good, are you really asking whether or not it's true or are you just asking whether or not it's easy? And I also want to push because this isn't always just our other than Christian neighbors. It's also Christian's. Because those who are surrounded by secular neighbors are tempted to find an easy way to to follow Jesus. And those who are surrounded by church folk are tempted to find an easy way to follow Jesus. And we reimagine Jesus to be more like us, a Jesus who agrees with us in every way. And we refashion his authority. We don't want to actually listen to what he says to let him be Lord of our lives There is a kind of evangelicalism and we are an evangelical church committed to God's word and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a kind of evangelicalism that is an evangelicalism without Jesus as Lord. And we're not interested in that. We want to know the true Christ who calls us on his narrow path that leads to life. And so I invite you, wherever you are, whether you need to deconstruct some things that have attached themselves to your view of Jesus so you can come back to the true one, or whether you've been just deconstructing your faith because you find the Christian faith uncomfortable, I invite you to ask who Jesus is and look to him truly because if he is who he says he is, and I know, I believe he is, you'll find that he's good. So first of all, don't let ease determine your view of his authority. Secondly, we're going to see in this passage, pay attention to the fruit of Jesus's authority. We should pay attention to the fruit of the authorities that we follow. That's the principle that Jesus lays out for us. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. He speaks about Trees, gives a picture of a tree. A good tree or a healthy tree bears good fruit. A rotten tree bears rotten fruit. We should pay attention to the fruit of those that we follow. But in our cultural moment, many of us don't like to consider the fruit of those we follow. It's inconvenient to consider the fruit. There's a, a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. I've been reading a lot of her lately. Very helpful voice. And she wrote in a book called The Secular Creed, if we're honest, we all have groups we like to dismiss. Lifelong Republicans No Democrats are immoral. Died-in-the-wool Democrats know the same about Republicans. She shares a story about uh, some things that were happening in Alabama and throughout the South. And she writes, a white prosecutor could tell that a black man named Anthony Ray Hinton Was guilty just by looking at him. Jews could tell the same about Samaritans. When my non-Christian friends hear about another celebrity pastor caught in a sex scandal, they're not surprised. They know Christians are hypocrites. And when we hear about violence against someone from a group we suspect, we look for evidence that they deserved it. And when we see violence from a group we trust, we look for evidence that it was justified. So be honest. Do you want to consider the fruit? Jesus, I would invite you to just consider his fruit for a moment. Look to him. Jesus speaks truth, (laughs) even when it's hard. He speaks gently to those who come to him in earnest. He defends those with his words. He defends the least of these against even religious insiders who have power to harm him. He is true. He has integrity. The people that he influences are changed profoundly. Peter, a coward who turns his back on him, spending more time with Jesus, looking to his words, becomes a man who's willing to die for Jesus. A man who was given to violence, He cuts off the ear of one of the temple guards. Becomes a man who would later celebrate Jesus who when he was reviled, reviled not in return. A man committed to the ways of Jesus. Paul, similarly, we can look at his story, the fruit of Jesus' words at work, of his life at work in others around him. There's a true fruit there. But I would just ask you, what kind of fruit What kind of fruit do the people who talk about Jesus to you have? I'm one, I'm imperfect. Do they represent the true Jesus? Because there were false prophets from early on in the Christian movement, even around Jesus in his day, certainly we see it in the book of Acts, who will come in and they will seek to profit on earnest believers. Because honestly, believers tend to be very earnest people who give people the benefit of the doubt. And so you are a person who can be profited on by wolvish people. And so you have to think about that. Think about the people that you place as authorities over your lives that are not Jesus. Be careful, especially when those people speak in Jesus' name. You'll know them by their fruits. Their fruits matter, Jesus says. (laughs) But one of the fruits that we don't like about Jesus, I mean, even I, I'm just being honest, I don't like to talk about hell. It's not something I look forward to. (laughs) I don't know that Jesus did either, but he spoke because it was true. Some of us and our neighbors would reject Jesus on the basis that he speaks about this. Why does he talk about hell? I think he speaks about it because he thinks it's true. Then the more ultimate question is, why hell at all? How could a good God, how could a good Lord, a good authority, send anybody to hell? Well, if you just look in this passage, we won't consider the whole biblical scope of teaching about hell, but just even in this passage, Jesus speaks about a way that leads to destruction. Destruction very clearly referring to hell. There's a wide way that leads to it. In this context, he's talking about a path that you choose. The, the terrible surprise that Jesus is saying here about hell is that it's what you didn't realize you actually wanted. You wanted a life apart from God. And every moment you chose an easy path apart from turning to God, and that's what you wanted. You just didn't realize that's what you wanted. You're on this path that leads to destruction. I'm trying to tell you, it's not actually what you want. It's not all it's cut up to be. Life without God. Jesus is about to speak in verses 21 to 23 about folks who don't truly know him. And he says at the end of this, I, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Hell is essentially life apart from God. And for many of us, Many of our neighbors on that wide path, it's what we didn't know that we really wanted. Hell is also a fiery justice. It's something deserved. There are false prophets Jesus speaks about who are preying on people with false teaching to profit off of them. They can make a buck off of them. They can promise an easy path. They can repackage Jesus, repackage God, in such a way that they can profit. People do this today, and people are harmed by it. Not only is it false prophets who are harmed, but at times people are harmed by religious abuse and all sorts of things. And even outside the context of these kinds of religious abuses, whether false prophets or God-talkers like me who abuse people in the name of Jesus... Even outside of that, there are people who are harmed in this world who never see justice. I think of a family who has their child taken by a local junta to be a part of a child army. And the family grieving because they'll never see their son again. There's no justice. And we live in such comfort in the United States and most of us who have feelings against hell have never experienced an injustice so profound as this. And we don't understand the ultimate injustice is that we turned our back on the one who came to save us in spite of all of our injustices. That we human beings, both the ones alive in the first century and the ones before and since, have related coldly to God who in all of the warmth of his heart for us would pursue us in Jesus, not only speak good words to us, but speak over our lives with his own life, Jesus on the cross, Jesus rising for us. And we've rejected that, many of us. And for those who do reject it, they're not found in the safety that he came to offer. Because ultimately, the safety is with Christ. Hell is apart from Christ. Safety, heaven, eternal life is with Christ. Christ. Jesus loves you enough to tell you that. So, pay attention to the fruit of Jesus and to authorities you listen to. Thirdly, if you do recognize Jesus' authority, if you do see something beautiful there, true there, seek him. Italicize him. Seek him. Because the ultimate treasure of Christianity, hear this, is not virtuous living, The ultimate treasure of Christianity is not a good life. WWJD is a fantastic bracelet. I really like it. And those who know Jesus ask that question and seek to live it. But that's not the ultimate value of Christianity. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that was hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he in his joy went and sold all that he had so that he could buy the field and have the treasure. It's like a pearl of great price. And a merchant, upon finding the pearl, sold everything that he had so that he could buy the one pearl. Jesus is the treasure. God in flesh with us, for us, forever is the treasure. It's Him. And you could do amazing things in His name. You could live an incredible life. I could preach a thousand sermons and see thousands of people, millions come to Jesus, amass a great following, become YouTube famous. And Jesus could say, at the last day, depart from me. I never knew you. If he is not the thing that I was after. And so... While these words are fearful, I hope you would lean into him. Take refuge in him. Hell is a fearsome thing. Being apart from God is a, a fearful thing, but Jesus is welcoming you to safety in knowing him and being known by him. If you recognize his authority, seek him. And fourthly, if you recognize this authority, you're gonna have to do what he says. The word to do occurs 11 times in verses 12 to 26, more than any other verb. Jesus is talking about what disciples do. And I want you to realize, while we are a church grounded, rooted in biblical teaching, what Jesus commands in this passage is not more Bible study. He's assuming you do that. (laughs) He's assuming you care about his word. What he is calling you to do is to do what he says. He's calling you to love your neighbors as yourself. He's calling you to love the least. He's calling you to be reconciled to people that you've had disagreements with, they've had fights with, to prioritize reconciliation. He says, first be reconciled to your brother. He's going to call you throughout the book of Matthew to things like clothing the naked, He's going to call you to visit those who are in prison. He's going to call you to be hospitable to those who are sick, to welcome those who are cultural outsiders in his name. He's going to call you to a costly obedience in a culture that tells you to have whatever you want. He's going to call you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not sufficient for these things. And so we give thanks that he's authority, an authority who laid down his life for every way we fail. And yet, he calls us to this: to be the body of Christ. So if you recognize his authority, do what he says. And ultimately, if you recognize his authority. You'll be amazed. Your house founded upon a rock, you'll stand steady. But it's impossible to stand in the presence of God, we find in the scriptures. Everybody falls to their knees. Everyone's astonished. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were amazed. And why were they amazed? Well, on a human level, Jesus wasn't like other teachers He wasn't just extending the authority of the rabbis before him. Well, according to so-and-so, this is true, and this is what you should do. And according to so-and-so. No, Jesus is saying, I say unto you. He's claiming authority. That's shocking. But even more so, there's something about Jesus that astounds people, just hearing his voice, being in his presence. Davies and Allison writing a a commentary on Matthew, wrote that Jesus speaks as he does because he has direct knowledge of God, the son who knows the father. They're astonished because they're hearing the words of God. And so this sermon on the mount is, is forcing you to ask who Jesus is and how you'll relate to his authority. How will you relate to him? And I, and I challenge you right now, if you hear his teaching and you merely say he's a good teacher, you've missed the point. We, we have a saying, we like to say, there's there's no stupid question. Well, this will sound mean. There's a stupid response to the Sermon on the Mount. It's to say Jesus is just a great teacher. Wow, what what an interesting guy. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in Mere Christianity. And he said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And that's the one thing, Lewis writes, we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. You might quibble with Lewis's argument, but today I invite you not to quibble I invite you to look to this Jesus of the scriptures, the only Jesus that we have true historical access to. And I invite you to consider who he is and what you will do about it. He is the kind of authority that we long for. You know, in in Ted Lasso, uh, we see such a nice, good authority in Ted, imperfect, but good. But ultimately on that show, Ted is just the kind of authority that anybody in our broader culture would want. He doesn't step outside of the lane of that broad way that our cultural affirms and call his team to anything more. His path is not narrow. It's kindness, which is good. But ultimately, the authority that our culture is longing for is the authority that ultimately would lead us to long for someone like Ted Lasso. That kindness, what is the basis for that kindness apart from the authority of a God who made us in his image and called us to image forth who he is, of an authoritative savior who called us to love our neighbor. There's no foundation for Ted Lasso if Jesus isn't true. I submit that to you today. And he's beckoning you to follow him. He's calling you to follow him. Look to him. Consider his path. He'll make known to you the paths of life. And he's going to call you to do what he says, but not merely to do what he says, but to know him and be known by him. You're going to be drawn to love him, to know him. You'll be moved to wonder. And and, and how could you not be moved to wonder, considering this authority who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? How could you not be moved to wonder? At the way he speaks truth at his own expense and for your good. At the one who speaks the truth in love, who cares for you. You can take a long look at him, and I hope you do. But don't patronize him with nonsense about him being a great teacher. Reject him for a liar or a lunatic or bow in wonder because he's Lord. Father, Uh, We pray that we could respond to Jesus rightly. I pray for folks who are wondering about Jesus and how they will relate to him. I pray that you would help them to see him truly before they make any decision. Take hold of them, I pray, in your grace, in your goodness, in your justice, in all you are. And take hold of all of us because all of us need to be taken hold of. We will run down that wide way apart from your grace. So steady us, root us, We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We get to see and feel and know the good news of this Savior Jesus as we come together at his table. This is one of these things that Christians have done historically since the beginning of the Jesus movement because Jesus commanded that we come together and remember him, remember what he's done for us. And even more so, not less than remembering him, one who is crucified and died and was buried, who rose again on the third day. We not only remember him, but we are invited to a special fellowship with him. He has promised to us he will be with us always to the end of the age, and yet he's given a special promise to his church, to his body, that when we take of this cup of blessing that he's blessed, that it's a participation in his blood, and when we eat of the bread, it's a participation of fellowship in his body, and so he meets us in a special way when we come together in his name. And so this is a very special moment where we get to commune with Jesus. We get to commune with one another. We're his body, Faith Church. And so I invite you, if you are a Christian, if you have been baptized into that walk with Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and today know this Savior whose body was broken for you and whose blood was poured out for you. If that's not you today, if you have questions about Jesus, I just invite you to come and talk to me, to talk to one of our elders. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take this and eat it all of you in remembrance of me. And I invite you today as you receive some bread to take hold of it in your hands And to take hold of Christ by faith, your Savior broken for you. In the same way, also after supper, he lifted up the cup and giving thanks. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take this and drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul adds that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim our Lord's death till he comes. So I invite you to eat, to drink, to proclaim the good news of the gospel to one another in this moment, in this sign of God's love. I invite you to do business with the Lord if you need to beforehand, confessing sin, confessing your commitment to follow him. But if you've sinned, you're one of all of us. Don't let that hold you back today. Come and take hold of Christ with all you've got He's your only hope, and he's here to give himself to you. So elders, if you'd come forward.